everybody. Welcome to the Second Cup Podcast. In today's episode of the Joshua Year series, Fear, Freedom, and What Happens in Between, we enter into Chapter 3, Why Are My Friends So Scary? I am so excited about this episode because we're going to dive into the first territory of our hearts where fear can reside, and that's friendship, and explore how God created us to be in relationship with others and how fear can get in the way of that. I hope you'll indulge me for a few minutes as I tell you a story about the first party I hosted in our new home and how God did some serious work on my heart amidst the decorations, champagne, and mini weenies. So you remember our old foreclosure that I told you about in the first episode? Well, it was a few months in and our house still wasn't feeling like home, despite our best efforts. We replaced the carpets, painted the walls, and scrubbed every room clean of its former inhabitants. But to me, it still felt uncomfortable. It still felt empty. It was like our house was a person whose soul had gone missing. The unused rooms at the end of the hall felt stale and hollow. The kitchen cabinet sat full of unused dishes. Unfinished projects lay on the floors like wounded soldiers. One day I said aloud to no one in particular, I think this place will feel more like home once we get some people in here. I imagined that if people came into our home, perhaps they'd leave behind traces of themselves to fill up all the hollow spaces. Laughter and meals eaten and wine poured would surely turn this structure into a home. That's how I decided we would host our first Christmas party. In a burst of enthusiasm, I typed up an invitation and sent it out to the masses. What's a soiree? Ethan asked when he saw it. It's a fancy party. Are you really going to make people dress up? He asked over the top of my computer. I was humming and searching Pinterest for mini meatball recipes. I feel like the guys are just going to want to wear jeans. Yes, they're going to have to dress up, I replied tartly. That's the best part. But it wasn't long after I sent the invitations that I began to feel the unpleasant grumblings of anxiety. What if nobody came? I was a little late getting the invitations out. My goodness, the party was only two weeks away. I massaged my scalp with my fingernails. What if everyone already had plans? Or worse, what if everyone said they had plans just because they actually didn't want to come? And if they did come, what if they didn't have a good time? I got up for a glass of water. What if they walked around our house and smiled and told us how great it looked, but secretly were eyeing the dirty ring in the toilet that I'd scrummed for hours and still couldn't get out? And my worst fear of all, what if everyone stood in circles and talked? and I could not find a circle to join? What if everyone were to realize that I was, in fact, just awkward and unsure of myself? This was all too much. I began to wonder how I could cancel the party without looking like an idiot. I was acutely aware of my insecurity as I stood at the kitchen counter, looking around the house and noticing every dirt smear and paint splotch and cobweb. I longed to be surrounded here, in this place, by easy laughter and the comfortable presence of friends. But whenever I found myself in a crowd of even the kindest and most genuine people, I felt uneasy. I had the unfortunate feeling that their talk was just lip service, 
that their mouths were saying one thing, but that their minds were bored, unimpressed, longing for someone more interesting to come along. There were many occasions when I would become so overwhelmed by this notion that I'd politely disengage from a conversation and retreat to the bathroom. I'd stay there just long enough to re-energize, taking a gasp of air and staring my mirrored self in the eye as if to say, we've got this. Certainly, this is not how God intended it to be, us running to bathrooms to hide from our friends. The Bible says that there is no fear in love. But aren't we all a little bit scared of love, if we dare to admit it? Aren't we all clawing for it? gasping for it, feeling desperately terrified of how much we need it? Is there a single human heart that doesn't simultaneously long to be loved and also fear that it won't be? The rest of the verse says that perfect love casts out fear. There is only one perfect love and only one perfect lover, and that's Jesus. The rest of us are just trying our best to push our selfish motives and quavering insecurities aside long enough to clear a path for love to leak in. Lots of times we fall short. None of us is ever quite able to perfect it. Have you ever heard of the concept of otherness? It's often used to describe people who have been affected by colonization and have lost their culture and thus have lost a part of themselves. They don't know where they belong anymore and walk around with a feeling of otherness. They feel separated from other people and haunted by the worry that they don't fit in anywhere at all. Well, I believe a lot of us actually experience otherness. We don't know where we belong. We experience disappointments in our attempts at friendship and begin to worry that we may be defective. Perhaps we're not built for friendship or maybe we're not worthy of it. Maybe it's for other people but not for us. Satan loves this. He loves the awkward moments, the unrequited affection. He capitalizes on harsh words and failed expectations. When love fails to be perfect, he begins to whisper his lies into our hearts. You'll never be good enough. Nobody cares about you. There's no place for you here. Everyone will hurt you just like you're hurting now. And oh, how believable those lies can be. Like when we're standing alone at a party, trying to find where we fit in or when we don't get invited at all. It's ironic how pride and insecurity tango together. At a distance, they seem to be opposites. One a matter of too much ego and the other a matter of not enough. But when we feel that horrible otherness, we try to compensate. We waffle between trying to earn our likability and stiffening our lips, pretending we don't need anyone anyway. The stiff lip is usually my default, to pretend I'm just fine alone. Thank you very much. C.S. Lewis writes this of pride in his book, Mere Christianity. Pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. He also says that the devil laughs as we fall into his trap, which he calls the dictatorship of pride. Because Satan hates fellowship. Community makes him cringe. He knows we need it, that God himself designed community, and that therefore it is innately powerful and good. He knows that the more community we have, the farther fear will be forced to recede. 
And so he whispers things to us that make us doubt others and doubt ourselves. He wants to make fellowship agonizing because then we won't want to do it anymore. He hardens our hearts with pridefulness, blocking off all possibility of love. And we get confused. We long to be in loving relationships with others more than anything else because that's the instinct God gave us. But we're also terrified of it, so we make ourselves hard and steely and superior, and Jesus cries out and Satan jumps for joy. Then we wonder where all the good friends are. It's hard for a heart that's become callous to begin to open up, revealing the soft, fragile stuff inside. It's a bit like a turtle without its shell, exposed to the wind and the water and the sun and praying the whole time that some bird doesn't come and eat it up while it's left unprotected. I was afraid like that, that if I let my, left myself unprotected, another person might come and eat me right up. But Jesus sat with me in the early morning hours while I wrote my poetry those couple of weeks before the party. Every time I gasped for breath as I imagined our house being filled with people who could reject me, and he reached over and covered my heart with his hand. It was warm and reassuring. Surely, he said, this is not who I created to be, created you to be. You are not the other. You were made for joy and connection. Come now, you must set down your pride. Lord, I cannot, I cried. I am much too afraid. Try, take a little risk. See what happens when you're vulnerable. But it could hurt, I protested. But it could be wonderful, he countered. I didn't know how to do it. My pride was like a sticky tar around my heart, built up over time to shield me from others. So I prayed. I asked Jesus to remove all that sticky coating so my heart could be vulnerable to love. The Bible says that God knows what we need before we even ask him. And sure enough, I could feel him beginning to pry me open even before my prayer was through. My heart was beginning to unclench even as I said amen. The air was moving around me, alive with hope and risk in the Holy Spirit. I hung breathlessly onto his promise that he would not leave me in my otherness. I knew that there was a sacred gift on the line. The day of the party, I woke up early. There was snow in the air, that imperious gray sky that summons Maine blizzards. I drank my coffee slowly and looked over my schedule for the day. According to my plans, the delicate almond crescents would bake while the party mix cooled. I would scrub every white surface in the house while the mini meatballs sizzled in the crock pot. The afternoon would be spent rolling weenies into crescent rolls and wrapping water chestnuts with bacon. Then I would put on my party dress before everyone arrived and drink a glass of wine to ease my nerves. I snapped my party planner closed with a sigh. I wanted to control the day so badly. In my mind's eye, I could see every detail clearly. Champagne, endless amounts of it. Bottles open on every surface. A cheese platter overflowing with brie and chev. Snacks throughout the house. Laughter bubbling to the surface of conversations like glasses clinking together. Our friends exclaiming over the mini-meanies. 
the old performer within me was back. I was vaguely aware that I should stop to talk with Jesus about it, but the morning was already moving so quickly. Those almond crescents weren't going to cook themselves. Okay, Pablo, I said, picking up his paw. Time to get to work. Outside, the sky had turned dark and was spitting snow out in angry gusts. I simmered a pot of cinnamon and cloves on the stove as if to ward it off. It couldn't possibly snow. God knew I was planning this party. I got the first text late in the afternoon. One friend apologized but couldn't make it because she was too afraid to drive in this weather. Soon my phone buzzed again and then again. It wasn't long before the guest list had gone from modest to small. I cried a little. I gorged on some cheese. Then I pulled out the gin and mixed up a pitcher of cocktails because at least if no one showed up, I'd have something to wash down all those mini weenies. I was a bit like the Israelites in this moment. Not long after experiencing God's mighty power in their miraculous exodus from Egypt, and even though they knew God was leading them to a place that was the stuff that dreams are made of, they found themselves out in the wilderness, cussing him out because things weren't going the way they'd planned. They were hangry. They began to say things to Moses like, Why'd you ever bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And is the Lord among us or not? And here I was questioning everything the Lord had told me and wondering how he could leave me here like this with a ready-to-go party and no friends to show for it. He knew this would be too much for me. Why wasn't anyone showing up? Why wasn't he showing up? At six o'clock, I put on a Christmas record and sat down on the couch in my sparkly dress. I looked around. The soiree was waiting to come alive. Lights twinkled, food steamed, champagne bubbled expectantly. I crossed my legs, then uncrossed them. I saw the glow from a headlight grow large on the wall across from me, and I stood and smoothed out my dress and peeked out the window, but it was just the neighbor. I sank miserably back down on the couch. This party was going to be a bust. Deidre. I heard Jesus at the edge of my consciousness, waiting to be invited in. I felt ashamed. I should have made time for him earlier. I tried to make everything perfect, even though he had told me to be vulnerable. The house was ready, but I was a mess. Deidre, he said again. Hearing him say my name brought my focus back. Back to the calm of our quiet mornings. Back to the promises he had made me about who he had made me to be. Back to the fact that pride and perfection were never going to bring me the desires of my heart. No one's coming, I cried to him. The tender parts of me, those parts that were all too familiar with the stinging tendrils of rejection, lurched and ached. No one likes me, the uncertain little girl within me sighed. That is a lie from the enemy, he said. No, no, I, I think I just have to try harder. Then people will like me. Deidre, the only thing you must try to do is to stop trying to impress your friends. Our conversation was interrupted by a knock at the door. I stood up and peeked into the kitchen. Our first guests stood huddled on the other side of the glass, their hair coated in snow and their arms full of treats. Oh, I said, surprised. Come in, come in. And just like that, our quiet house 
whose walls my nervous thoughts had been pinging between all day, began to fill with cold jackets and loud voices and wet boots and kind hearts. Later in the evening, the record stopped and I snuck away to the study to flip it. It was dark except for the electric candle on the windowsill and there in the glass I caught my reflection. A relieved girl laughing in a pretty dress. I listened to the conversations carry on in the other room. They had come. They were enjoying themselves. I realized then that it wasn't because the house was spotless or because I had said all the right things, nor was it because the food was perfect or that I was performing well as a hostess. It had nothing to do with me and everything to do with the joy that comes from just being in community with others. The simple joy of laughter and fellowship and togetherness. It was a noisy, glorious, jubilant success. Thank you, God, I breathed. The next morning, I sat on the couch in the living room, surveying the aftermath and nibbling a sugar cookie. Only eight people had ended up coming. We'd be eating leftover cheese and charcuterie for weeks. But my heart, oh, my heart, it wasn't feeling rejected at all. Because something had happened at the party. I had tiptoed out into the risky waters of vulnerability and set aside all perfect notions for the way things should be. For the way I should be. I'd stopped caring about the rusty ring in the toilet. I had taken off my high heels and tossed them in the corner. I'd sat and truly listened to my friend's stories instead of nodding vaguely and constructing my own response in my mind. And wonder of wonders, my friends hadn't run away when I dropped my prideful mask and opened my quirky, vulnerable self to them. They had come toward me. They didn't care about the stuff and nonsense of the Christmas soiree. They only wanted connection, just like me. What sweet relief to cast aside my otherness and open my heart wide to the people I had been longing to connect with. What a surprise that when I presented my broken imperfection, they wanted to see more. After the Israelites grumbled and complained so much that Moses was afraid they'd stone him to death, God ended up giving them manna to eat and water from a rock to drink. I imagine he rolled his eyes a little. He'd already told them the plan and shown them he was mighty enough to do it. But then he still opened his hand and provided exactly what they'd needed. He was never going to let them starve or die of thirst. And much to my amazement, God had opened his hand for me too with this party and had given me exactly what I needed even though I had doubted it right up until I was drinking that vulnerability and connection myself. So here's the thing. God knows that we're starving for connection and thirsty for love. He will lead us through this territory of our hearts with gentleness. We can trust that he's going to open his hand and provide even when we're grumbling and can't see past our own discomfort. We should prepare ourselves for the fact that he may not provide in the way that we're expecting, but he will provide in exactly the way that we need. Courage in this territory of the wilderness looks like allowing God to open up our hearts so we can present them to others, whole and real and ready to be shared. Thank you so much for listening to Chapter 3 of the Joshua Year series on the Second Cup Podcast. 
Every listen truly rocks my world. If you enjoyed this, would you consider sharing it with a friend? Also, make sure that you're subscribed to the Second Cup on Substack. That way you'll get notified of each new episode on the podcast, plus have access to all of my new work. I'm sending love to each of you, and I'm praying for a courageous week of connection ahead.